Amen. Okay, so we're going to continue through 1 Corinthians 13. appreciate you bearing with. We're, we're recording these sessions, so we're doing this format a little differently instead of sitting in the circle. So we're going to go through the presentation, and then we'll have discussion. So last week, we began uh, our study of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and we talked about the context. Uh, the Corinthian church has all kinds of divisions, and the Apostle Paul is writing to them to address these divisions in the church. And in chapters 12 through 14, the specific issue that he's addressing is that apparently some of the Corinthians were, their perspective was that those who manifested miraculous gifting from the Lord, such as speaking in tongues, prophecy, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, their perspective was that people who demonstrated those kinds of spiritual gifts were more spiritual than other people. And I might even, last time I kind of used that word spiritual, I might even phrase it this way, they were they were presenting themselves as being more spiritually mature, being more closer closer to godliness, closer to Christ's likeness. And so Paul in second in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, his goal is to refute that and to say that the manifestation of miraculous gifts in no way indicates your spiritual maturity. In this chapter, particularly in 1 Corinthians 13, he suggests that that you can actually manifest those gifts and be full of uh, lots of bad stuff. And so in verses 1 through 3, first Paul argues that love is the essential mark of Christian spiritual spiritual maturity. Who wants to read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13 to us? Mm-hmm. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Okay, so it is important for us to uh, note that these gifts that he's referring to are what? What kind of gifts? Supernatural. Yeah, supernatural gifts. So when we say that, uh, you know, people talk about 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 teaching us about how to use spiritual gifts, well, it's talking to us about some spiritual gifts. It's really not giving us a broad teaching about spiritual gifts in general. It's talking to us about a very specific category that the Corinthian church was focusing in on. So, miraculous uh, abilities that are empowered by the Spirit. We would say that it's miraculous to give all that we possess to the poor and surrender our bodies. That's a good question. Verse 3, verse three. it seems like he's switching it up for the sake of emphasis. So, I think he's saying that those who... Well, he says a lack of love invalidates all claims to spiritual maturity. So whether that claim to spiritual maturity is based on supernatural ability, speaking in tongues, uh, prophetic powers, having all knowledge, there is, he has in mind words of knowledge, uh, supernaturally d- uh, discerned knowledge. And he says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, and then in verse 3, he says, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, I, I think, I don't think, I think he's, 
he's departing a little bit from the spiritual gift discussion to say, even if I do these self-sacrificial things, giving away everything that I own, even giving myself up to death, but if I don't do it with a loving heart, it's meaningless. Meaningless before God, who knows our heart. So any claim to spiritual maturity based on miraculous ability, if if a lack of love invalidates that claim, any claim to spiritual maturity that's based on personal sacrifice, uh, without lo- a lack of love invalidates that claim. So love is the indispensable ingredient uh, without which there can be no spiritual maturity. So that's the foundation that he lays. And then he moves on to describe the character of love in verses 4 through 7. Will someone read those verses for us? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so in this context, Paul's point is that it's very possible it actually was the case in Corinth, but even in our situation, he says it's very possible uh, for believers to possess the gifts of tongues, prophecy, words of knowledge, wisdom, etc., and at the same time be impatient, unkind, envious, boastful, arrogant, rude, insisting on their own way, irritable, resentful, rejoicing in wrongdoing, And so regardless of how gifted these believers may be, he says that they are not spiritual or they are not spiritually mature. And it's evidenced by this. Uh, In Galatians, the Apostle Paul gives us a contrast between the behavior of those who are spiritual versus those who are carnal. Uh, And remember last week we talked about when the Apostle Paul talks about spiritual, he's not talking about those people who are really not like New age, oh, they're so, they're so spiritual, they're so, uh, out there, man. Uh, he's saying that those who are spiritual are those who are yielded to the Holy Spirit, those who are influenced by the Holy Spirit, and therefore those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we, we talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 where he calls our resurrection bodies spiritual bodies, right? And how Jesus, it's the same kind of body that Jesus had, and even though it was a spiritual body, it was also a physical body. It was a body that could be touched and a body that could absorb food and, and take food in. So spiritual doesn't mean non-physical. It just means that which is influenced and characterized and energized by the Holy Spirit. And so he get, in Galatians 5, 16 to 26, he makes the same kind of contrast. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul's already introduced this dichotomy. He's already said, I couldn't talk to you as to spiritual people, but I had to talk to you as to fleshly people, carnal people, because you couldn't handle spiritual talk. Uh, so again, he's unpacking this dichotomy. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, what you produce through your carnality, is evident. Namely, it's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, on the other hand, the fruit of the Spirit, so someone who is characterized by the Spirit, this is what their life produces. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so what, what heads up the list of his, of a life lived by the Spirit? Love. It's first, first and foremost. And then verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, if we are living our lives by the Spirit, if we're controlled and energized by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. If we were going to make some summary statements, it would be something like this, and I'm kind of drawing from several uh, 1 Corinthians 13 as long as, as, as well as other passages. But the mark of the Spirit is radical servanthood versus self-entitlement. It's a consistent theme that you see in the New Testament. Those who are walking by the Spirit, those who are energized by the Spirit, are marked by servanthood and not self-entitlement. Secondly, the mark of the Spirit is radical sacrifice for others versus self-interest. Think about Philippians chapter 2 there. Have this mind in you which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held on to, but he humbled himself. Third, the mark of the Spirit is radical forgiveness versus bitterness and resentment. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love does not take into account a wrong suffer, suffered, does not act unbecomingly, it's patient, it's kind. So love doesn't seek its own. Those who are, those who are walking by the Spirit, those who are manifesting this fruit of love, the mark of the Spirit is radical humility versus pride. Love is not arrogant. Love does not insist on having its own way. It's willing to yield. And the mark of the Spirit is radical perseverance. And I'm thinking particularly in relationships, difficult relationships. So someone who is being empowered by the Spirit, who's manifesting the fruit of love, uh, they persevere in difficult relationships versus our natural human instinct to reject and isolate, to get away from that relationship, to get some distance and to be by yourself. So radical perseverance in Difficult relationships. Spiritually mature people remain big-hearted and open even in difficult relationships, even with difficult people. It's hard, hard to do. It's, it's a, that's a supernatural thing. Because the natural thing is to reject and isolate. The Apostle Paul, he's cast, he's projecting an ideal for us. And so I don't think we ever, when we're talking about what it looks like to be a mature Christian, we don't ever want to become heavy-handed in our expectations of others because we all are where we are. None of us, none of us live up to the first Corinthians 13 ideal. And so there's no place for guilting each other for where we fall short. But this is what I would say is that your capacity for coping with difficult people 
is proportionate to your your ability to yield to the spirit to walk in the spirit and to and to be controlled so i would say that like because the world's full of unhealthy people and some of us have those unhealthy people in our families close relationships and so i would say that some of us are at a place where some of us might be able to cope with more unhealthiness than others of us based on life experience growing up in that family some of us may have a lower threshold where we need to say, I need to put a boundary because this is not good for me. And that's okay. And that's, I'm not, you know, we shouldn't pass judgment on each other. I think that's where we get into the, the weaker, stronger uh, area of gray. If the relational difficulty really is on their side, you know, then being big-hearted is about being, maybe you're, you're just, your posture is openness toward reconciliation whenever they're willing to make that step towards you. So Jesus tells us, he says, I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. I feel like we were so familiar with that statement that it loses a little bit of its profundity for us. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Almost every time I've taught this in a men's Bible study, uh, it devolves into a discussion of why it's Jesus didn't actually mean this, and he uh, and it's and and it's when he talks about turning the other cheek, that Jesus didn't actually mean turn the other cheek, but that there's some room for retaliation. Um, in almost every men's Bible study I've taught, uh, I, I taught this at a pastors' conference in Nigeria. And, uh, and they, you know, and they're like, yeah, well, we can pray for them, but, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna strike back. Uh, Nigerian Christians at the time I was there in 2011, there had just been some attacks on some churches, and some of the Christians had retaliated and gotten some positive result from it. They had, they had retaliated, and the Muslims had sort of backed down a little bit, and they had given them some space to breathe, and so, with that positive reinforcement, they were like, okay, so they're, they're going back to Matthew 5 and thinking, okay, maybe we don't have to turn the other cheek. Maybe we can somehow love our enemies while still, I'd say, I'd say that our obedience to this verse is a, a very good indication of our spiritual maturity and how, how much we're walking in the spirit. Our, our capacity to genuinely love our enemies the way that we would love our friends, the way that we'd love ourselves. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven because God loves His enemies. Romans, turn to Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him also we have access by faith into this grace Sorry, I just want to point out in verse 5 there, there's a, a strong connection, a strong correlation there between the love of God and the Spirit. Again, okay, go ahead in verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Died for who? Ungodly. ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will pay, 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can yeah, you can stop there. But God's demonstration of his own love toward us is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While uh, we were God's enemies, we were hostile toward God. And so God is one who loves his enemies. He makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So what is Jesus saying? Is he saying that this is when he says, if you only love those who love you, if you only greet the people who are like you, what's he saying? Whoop-de-doo. Whoop-de-doo. Why is he saying whoop-de-doo? You're right. That's the people who are carnal, people who are without the Spirit, do that. So your life ought to be a step beyond that. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, you're living like mere men, which is really something. He's implying that because of the Holy Spirit living in us, our lives ought to be more than mere humanity. We ought to be characterized by something more than just human impulse and human response. And Jesus, I think, is implying the same thing here. Those who, those who are sons of the Heavenly Father are those who do more than what the average human does. Not because they're better than other humans, but because of the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of them. 1 John 4, 7 and 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born and of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, John does not say that love is God. A lot of people want to invert this, and they say love is God, and then I, that then I can make God be my own happy, warm, fuzzy interpretation of love. But the kind of love used here, and the word love that's used throughout 1 Corinthians 13, I think Justin Bass may have mentioned this word, that of all the Greek words of love, this is the most intensive form of love. It's agape. And it's uh, it's it refers to a self-sacrificing kind of love, a love that is so committed that it's willing to go to the very to the very ends. It's the word that's used in John 3.16 that says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, and then a few verses later, it's used in John 3, 19. I'm going to turn there so I can get it word perfect. But he says, uh, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And so the word used there for the love that men have for the darkness is the same committed, self-giving love that God has for the world. Meaning God is so committed that he's willing to give his very best for the sake of saving the world. 
And men love the darkness so much, they're so committed to it that they're willing to resist the light to the uttermost. God's love is amazing and man's love for darkness is, is tragic and, and, you know, I mean, we, we all see people in the grip of sin, uh, see people who, who are making irrational life choices and we say, man, that's so crazy. Why do they keep doing that to themselves? It's because sin is irrational and it produces this irrational love of evil. But God is love. Love is not God, but God is love. God is in His nature, God is characterized by love. Perfectly loving. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation means satisfaction for our sins. Uh, satisfying atonement for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now listen to this. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. And so John is saying that the closest, no, no human being has ever laid eyes on God. And the closest that the world will ever get to seeing God visually is in us. If we love one another, God dwells among us. This probably should be translated among rather than in. Among us, meaning as a community, as a people. And His love is perfected in us. So in the community of believers loving one another, this is how we display God to the world that has never seen God. And Jesus said something very similar. John thirteen thirty five. he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so I wanted to, I know that's a lot of verses. I wanted to hit those because I think they, they all kind of serve to flesh out when the Apostle Paul is, is giving us this bullet point <coughs> list of what, of what love is like. They kind of help round out the picture. But love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous, it does not brag, it is not arrogant, it does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. And then finally, in verse 8, he says, love never ends. And he says, he says, and he's with this last statement about what love is like, he says it's everlasting, it's eternal. He's setting up a contrast between love as a quality that characterizes those who are influenced by God's Spirit versus these gifts that the Corinthians are lifting up as the ultimate mark of spirituality, the ultimate mark. He says, love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will pass away, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So he says that the gift of prophecy well, he says, he said, basically says, miraculous gifts are only for this age. Now, when the perfect comes, what's he referring to when he says the perfect? Well, let's, let's read, let's read the, the rest of this and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. When I was a child, he says, 
So he says that these things are going to pass away, but love's going to last forever. And then he uses an analogy. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Okay, so he says that whatever he means about when the perfect comes, these things are going to cease. He says it's similar to uh, human development. When I was a baby, I spoke like a baby. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Then I grew up and I changed the way that I uh, uh, lived, related, because I didn't, uh, because I wasn't a child anymore. And then he uses another analogy. He says, for now, it's like we see in a mirror dimly. But then, referring to when the perfect comes, it's, it'll be like seeing face to face. He says, now I know things in part, but then when the perfect comes, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So in light of that, does that help us to, to think of what the perfect is that he's talking about? He's talking about glorification with Christ, that, that full and final, uh, fully and finally being conformed to the image of Christ. And so he's saying that prophecies and tongues and knowledge are for this present time. So what are they, what are they functioning for in this present time? And this is getting ahead of us a little bit because this is what chapter 14 is going to talk about. But what, and he, but he did mention it in chapter 12 as well. What did he say these spiritual gifts are for as they're practiced in the body, in the church, in this present time? That's exactly right. So edification of the church, building the church up to towards spiritual maturity. So he says the reason that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the church is so that the church can become mature. But when the perfect comes, when we reach that maturity, we won't need tongues anymore. We won't need prophecy anymore. We won't need any of these things anymore. They're all going to cease because we're going to be like Christ. But love won't cease. In, so he says that the love is the sign of God's kingdom reign in every age. Um, and this is where I would push back a little bit on some of my charismatic brothers and sisters because um, there's there's a big emphasis on in in some streams there there's a big emphasis on miraculous manifestations as a sign of God's kingdom, and I think that that's true. But I think that this explains why those signs may be limited in this age. Why we see, uh, whenever we see a miraculous healing, whenever we see uh, something like that happening, it's a, it is a sign of God breaking into this present evil age and giving us glimpses and foretastes of what's to come. Um, but we shouldn't have an expectation that those things should be just Minute by minute, every day, every time we go out to do evangelism, somebody gets healed. I think that's an unrealistic ex- expectation based on what Scripture says. I think we should pray for healing every time we go out. I think we should ask God for it every time. But I, I think that those in-breakings are supposed to be glimpses of what's to come. Question yep. yep, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, spiritual gifts or... Yeah, so the the time between now and the consummation, the time when we're glorified together with Christ. So then that means the spiritual gifts would be valid up until when Christ comes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, 
so I'm a, I'm a continuationist, so I, I believe that all of these gifts are functioning in the present time and will continue until the present time. Um, and I've, we've, I've talked about this before in a sermon, but and in, the, in 1 Corinthians 12, it says that gifts are given as God wills and as the Holy Spirit wills. And so I don't think that tongues is a normative thing for all believers. I think that it's a gift that God gives to some as he wills. Paul's going to mention, uh, well, in chapter 12, he said, not all speak in tongues, do they? It was a rhetorical question expecting a negative answer. And uh, so, yeah, during this age, until Christ comes, uh, I think that the Holy Spirit's giving gifts as he wills. Yeah. Well, and even beyond that, I think what he's saying is that when we're conformed to the image of Christ, we are going to express that love in a more perfect way than we ever have here on earth. Um, and think about this. So a lot of people have this idea that God created the world because he wanted somebody to love. Okay, he wanted to create people so he could love them as though God needed objects of love and he was incomplete without having objects of love. But we subscribe to the doctrine of the Trinity and Jesus says that God loved him before the world was and he loved the Father before the world was. So and remember in chapter 12, Paul gave us this Trinitarian formula where he showed us that that the God, uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit enjoy unity and diversity. They are one God, but they are three distinct persons. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the church also is built with unity and diversity. In the same way, God, Father, Son, and Spirit enjoyed a loving relationship, have enjoyed a loving relationship eternally. Within that unity and diversity of the Godhead, love is a part of their essence and a part of their character and something that they've always shared. And so God had no need of an object to love. He enjoyed love, but it is God's nature to for his love to be expressed. All right, last verse. Love is the most excellent quality for now and eternity. So he, he shifts the argument now. He, he, again, he kind of turns away from explicitly talking about spiritual gifts and he gives us three core values of the Christian life. He says, now faith, hope, and love abide, remain, uh, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And so this is a, uh, even a little more challenging because he's saying that love, in some sense, is greater than faith and hope. Now, if, if it's, uh, saying that love is greater than faith is hard for, for a Protestant evangelical to swallow, right? Because we're, we're, we're Protestants. We're, we're on the Reformation truth that, uh, we live by faith alone, right? But that's what Paul says. He says that love is greater than faith and hope. And I think what he means is that faith is that love is more permanent than faith and hope. And I'll show you what I mean. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so faith is a present assurance of something that is not a current reality. 
And so by its very nature, it's future-oriented. Uh, I think about Peter saying that though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And you're going to obtain a reward for that faith, which is more precious than gold in the eyes of God. Um, so we have not seen Jesus. We only have the testimony of the apostles given to us through the New Testament and our own experience with God through the Holy Spirit, but we haven't had tangible, you know, proof. So it's not something that we have physically. And so faith is the assurance, the assured belief that the things hoped for will one day become reality. So by its very nature, it's a future-oriented thing. One day our faith will be sight. And then hope, uh, Romans 8, 24, 25, Paul says that in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. <laughs> That's very logical. For who hopes for what he sees? If you tell your kid that on Friday they're going to get a candy bar, until every day until Friday, they're going to be talking about how I can't wait till Friday when I get that candy bar, right? They're going to be talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. They're hoping, hoping for what they don't see. But on, when Friday comes and they have it in their hands, they're no longer hoping. Now they're enjoying the fulfilled promise, promise fulfillment. <laughs> so, for, so he says, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Yeah. And so, so hope and faith are both by their very nature future oriented, but love is, is everlasting. It has, uh, it's applicable, it's appropriate in the, this age now, and it's going to be even more appropriate in the eternal age. I'm going to raise a question that I don't necessarily have an answer to. So don't shoot me. But I was thinking about Adam and Eve, and I was thinking, okay, so when Adam and Eve sinned against God, were they, was it a failure of faith, not trusting God, or was it a failure of love? Was it a was it a relational failure? I'm just thinking about because I, I think about this scheme of of living life. You know, we're 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 on our way to a restored creation. God created Adam and Eve. He created a world perfect enjoying relationship with them and that world got corrupted and now we're on our way back toward that experience of of perfect relationship with God. And so it just it just makes me wonder if Paul says that faith is kind of for the now time while we're waiting, uh it makes me think, you know, was what God expected of Adam and Eve was it as much faith or was it love? And you know, I think about immediately I think about Deuteronomy and Exodus, even within the Mosaic Covenant, where there are these commands to love the Lord your God. Really, what he wanted more than anything was for you to love him, and that if you love him, that gets expressed through obedience. And you see that in First John all over the place, and also in John's Gospel, that love brings forth obedience. Um, so anyway, so that's something to chew on. You don't have to sign any doctrinal statement. So which characteristics of love are most convicting for you? And how would you like to see love expressed in your own life? And how can we become more loving?